Things, friends, it is the weekend of Sunday, October the 16th. And in our present series, we're facing together the problem of how believers should react to all the social problems and justices of our day. I, I suppose we all feel that there's never been a time when problems of society were more widespread. They, they press on us everywhere we turn. We can't escape them. And so we need to find an answer to these from, from Scripture. And we're doing so in by looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and looking specifically at some um, at a short pa- uh, section of verses. And in verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, For though we live in the world, we're not carrying on a worldly war. The weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. So in this passage, as we've seen, there are two things that are, that are immediately evident. One is that we cannot and we must not ignore these problems. We live in the world, Paul says. We must not try to evade them or ignore them. We, must, we can't run away from life. It's basically unchristian to run away from the problems of life, to seek shelter where we can live out our years without encountering difficulties around us. This wasn't the case with Jesus. He lived square in the middle of life. He lived life up to the hilt and associated with those who were afflicted with all kinds of problems, emotionally, physically, in every other way. So this is also where we must live as believers. We live in the world. We can't adopt a, a head-in-the-sand attitude. The bodily ills concern us, or they, certainly, or they certainly should. We remember the words of the Gospels concerning Jesus, that he looked on the multitudes with compassion. He saw them as sheep, not having a shepherd, Matthew nine thirty six, wandering about without help or guidance in the midst of perplexing and very confusing situations, which they didn't understand being destroyed because of their ignorance. But since he possessed the light and the truth, he longed to convey it to them. This must be the attitude of believers. Secondly, in this very brief section of scripture, it's apparent that we do not and must not attack these problems in the way that the world does. So Paul says, we we live in the world, but the weapons of our warfare are not worldly. We don't face life the same way. We fight in another dimension. And yet our fighting is not weak, it is powerful, it wins, it succeeds, it is, it is mighty. In the previous weeks, we noted that in a general way, something of the nature of these problems in, in, in individual and social life, they're, and they're what these, these problems are what Paul calls strongholds. In other words, they're places and situations where evil is entrenched, where it can't be dislodged, it's powerfully defended. There are many strongholds. In our day, and, and they, they're around us on every side. Many have become issues which the world is struggling vainly to alleviate, alleviate, but without any success. But we haven't learned enough about these problems. So the invitation today is to look further at verse 5, where Paul says, We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle to the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 10, 5. So there's a couple things that are revealed here. First of all, there's the source of the enemy's strength. And second, there's the nature of the believer's attack. So today we're only going to focus on the first of these two things, One, the, the source of the enemy's strength. One of the chief rules of warfare, of, of, of sport, if you will, of anything, is to know your enemy. Know your opposition. One can never be successful as a soldier if you do not know something about the tactics of that enemy. It's true in the military conflict, and it's certainly true in spiritual warfare as well. And the second rule of warfare is to then know our weapons, know what we have to meet the enemy with, know how to use them. 
But we're going to come to grips with the first issue. What makes these strongholds so strong? Where does the enemy derive the strength that enables him to remain entrenched in human society? Why is it so difficult to eradicate these pockets of evil in our social structures? Why do they defy the attempts made by sincere and earnest men and women, believers and non-believers, such as such as recorded on in all of our um, social media and our podcasts and however we find news or whatever. Why, why are they so hard? Well, the answer lies in two elements which Paul describes first in verse five. They are always present in any problem where evil is at work, whether it is in the individual life or the the life of society, social life. And though the scripture makes its appeal largely to the individual, we have to remember that society is nothing but a collection of individuals. So these things have direct relevance in social areas as well. So what are these two elements? Well, here are the pillars of strength of evil revealed to us. First, Paul says, they are arguments. So in the Greek, it is logismus, which means reasonings. Second, their strength derives from every proud obstacle, pride. In other words, literally, it is every high thing which exalts itself. In other words, every point of pride which is expresses itself in conceit, self-praise, self-exaltation, and whose final ultimate thrust is, as Paul puts it, against the knowledge of God. That is where evil derives its strength. It's from these two things, reasonings, and the independent pride which insists that humanity does not need God. These are the pillars from which evil derives its ultimate strength. And we're, we're going to note immediately that there's a relationship between these two things, between reasonings or arguments, if you will, are the outward expression of the inward attitude of self-sufficient pride. This is why social problems are so impervious to the weapons that the world uses. Why is it that mankind cannot seem to get anywhere in solving these problems by meetings, discussions, committee reports, investigations, all those other things? It is because the weapons that they are using are infected with the same disease that they're trying to cure. The ones who are attempting to solve these problems are doing so with minds and hearts already twisted and affected by the very evil that they're trying to get at. This is what humanity does not see. We think that an, an earnest desire is all that it takes, but we do not understand that we ourselves are affected by the very same evils. Even Christians obviously can approach problems in the same way. Whenever Christians approach these problems with the world's weapons, well, they too display the same weakness. So we have to take a closer look at these points of strength from which evil derives its power and persistence. First of all, these reasonings, these arguments. Have, have we noticed in reading history or studying life around, just being observant, that every movement in society which eventually becomes a threat or an attack on humanity always originates, if we can get back to the very beginning of it, as an emotional outburst. It never begins with someone coolly sitting down and planning to start a movement. It always begins with some emotional reaction. Then, having taken that form at the beginning, it is soon apparent that in order to continue the movement and expand it, it will be necessary to justify it. It needs to be explained and defended. It calls then for the activity of writers and speakers who can support the cause with arguments. So when a movement begins as an emotional outburst, it's rather it's rather simple to control at that early stage of any movement. It can, it can be handled. Those involved can usually sit down with others 
and work out things, work things out. And emotions cool, wiser heads prevail. This happens all the time. There, there are these movements, incipient movement, movements around us that, that are being arrested at their very start by such processes, level heads prevailing. But when a movement passes to the second stage and begins to be supported and built up by arguments, by reasoned defenses and explanations and justification of these things, from that moment, it begins to take on strength and it's difficult to overthrow. If we know the scripture, we will notice that this is the pattern that took place in the Garden of Eden. Here is Eve before this, this very desirable fruit. And it has made its appeal to her senses and, and to everything in her. It's aroused her desire. And she stands there looking at the fruit and she wants to have it. And there has been this awakened, this urge, an emotional reaction within her, even though she's told she can't do it. And the story goes on to reveal the next stage. As she looks at it before, before her, she begins to outline in her mind the first chapter of a book, if you will, a book of defense self-defense of eating the fruit. She sees that it's, well, it's good for food. It's, it's delight. It's beautiful to look at. It's desirable to make one wise. They're, they're the chapters of the book that she's writing in her head, ultimately uh, presented to her husband, speaking figuratively, of course, in which she convinced him that the eating was the right thing to do. And this is exactly what happens today. A movement begins, certain conditions create it, and there's an emotional reaction to it. And then instead of calming down so that the problems can be worked out, somebody defends that action. Someone writes out an argument for it or speaks about it or ju and justifies it. And soon the movement spreads, and then it's very difficult to overthrow. It is derived strength from what Paul speaks to, of here as reasonings. But now we must look at this more closely. We have to look at this as believers, and we must understand what these reasonings are because they are essentially a tribute to the primacy of the superiority of the mind, the intelligence in humanity. What is it that distinguishes humankind from the animals is that they refuse to have their mind bypassed. Animals react emotionally. They follow urges, the instincts of their own kind. When an animal acts, they're not troubled by conscience. They, do, they don't toss and turn all night in, in their sleep because of what they did during the day. You can, you can check on them and see if any of you pet owners out there. And men and women would react the same way if it were not for our mind. That strange faculty of wanting everything to be logical, reasonable, justifiable. So it is the mind that prompts the conscious. The mind cannot be bypassed. It, it has to come into play. But when it is asked to defend something that is not right, that's not in line with reality, then these reasonings become false reasonings. They become what we call rationalizations. They are simply an answer that the mind resorts to to make an action that's already occurred appear to be reasonable. And that's what Paul is referring to here. This is where evil gets its strength from. It produces appealing, plausible-sounding arguments which make their ultimate appeal to our self-sufficiency, to our unlimited capabilities at least as we see ourselves, our lack of any need for God, and which basically against the knowledge of God. These things appeal to humanity's independence so logically and compellingly that millions of us are deceived by them and follow them. And that is why evil is so deeply entrenched in society. So let's go a step further. In the full revelation of Scripture, it is made clear 
where these reasonings come, the ultimate source of them. Without going into tons of detail, you know, to pinpoint them for you, Paul calls these doctrines of demons. He says they arise from seducing spirits, spirits at work, using the minds of men and women as their instruments to present to humanity what really are lies. They're reasonable sounding lies, plausible lies, but they are lies. They're not the truth. They're false. They're seductive. They lead people astray. They do not educate the mind toward truth, but toward error. And when we look for the demonic, we don't merely look at the occult, at that realm of the outright demonic possession, that thing that we, you know, we sort of put over here, these wicked spirits in high places. Paul talks about that too in Ephesians 6. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6, 12, he says, but we wrestle against these who are working through the minds and thinking of men. How else can we explain the evil that keeps cropping up in human society? Why is it that, that oftentimes universities dedicated to the pursuit of truth should become in many cases the place where evil is deep-seated and, and powerfully disseminated? How else can we account for this except for the fact that Paul has correctly analyzed the situation and that these ideas come from demonic spirits working through the minds of men, teaching wrong ideas in a very logical and plausible way. So we try that formula out on life and we see if it, if it doesn't fit. Every movement has its reasonings to support it, the good as well as the bad, the true as well as the false. Each has its philosophy, its defenders, its explainers, its quote-unquote theologians, who are constantly justifying and explaining why things happen. But we can tell the difference between the good and the bad, between truth and error. When we see what is at the heart of it, what is at the thrust of it, what is behind it, which people are trying to bring out. In the good, it is always the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, no man can come to the Father except the Son, and, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. Think of that claim. No one can know the Father except the Son, and then those whom the Son will reveal him. If that is true, then the knowledge of God is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this is why he said in that great prayer in John 17, this is life eternal, that men may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent, John 17, 3. That is what the knowledge of God is. It is knowing Jesus, the Son of God, because it's through him that we know God the Father. So then we look at the heart of any philosophy, at its arguments and its reasonings. It may not even mention God, but does it exalt, does it push up mankind, humanity? Well, that's the point. If it's lifting up humanity as something high and great, something that exalts itself, praises itself, that is the test. When we see what lies behind those things, we can tell whether it is a doctrine of demons or the truth as it is in Jesus. You see, we make life gray. When it's not, it is black and white. And look at what is behind the arguments for so many things. For, you know, take something, you know, kind of the low-hanging fruit of drugs, for instance. What do we read today? What do we know about? What, what are people hearing about drugs? Where they're told that in, in experiencing drugs, there's a promise of, of color, meaning, excitement, fulfillment. But it's all without God. It's a promise of finding fulfillment without any reference whatsoever to the only one who can produce this in human life. It ignores God. It sets him aside. They may talk about God, but not God as he is revealed in Jesus Christ. So this whole movement is demonic. That sounds strong. 
but it's demonic in the sense of its source, a doctrine of demons leading men and women not into freedom and liberty, but into enslavement where minds and hearts are being destroyed. Mental institutions filled with people who have been deluded into an experiment with drugs and their minds are being permanently destroyed. What lies behind racial prejudice, whether it be white or black, what lies behind that? We can see clearly it's a desire for pride, for domination over others, for the exaltation of quote-unquote my group as opposed to someone else's group. Racism is always this, and so it is clearly a doctrine of demons. These reasonings, no matter how plausible the arguments may sound in support of them, are revealed at their heart as being high things, quote-unquote, exalting themselves against the knowledge of God. And against this, says Paul, we are to bring the weapons of truth and love, righteousness, faith and prayer, because they destroy reasonings. They pull down arguments. They demolish them and the pride that is ultimately behind them. How does it all happen? Well, that's the question that we're going to start to look at in our next study. But to summarize it quickly by saying this, it is by the gospel, by the declaring and the demonstrating of the gospel. The gospel is in its widest range, love, truth, faith, righteousness, faith, and prayer, all centered on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. These are what the gospel is, these very things. So we can demolish strongholds by the demonstration of the gospel. I'm not talking merely of preaching or teaching the truth or handing someone a New Testament or a Bible or a tract. That's not what the scripture means when it speaks of proclaiming the gospel. The whole life of the believer has to be aimed. If telling the truth is canceled, if our telling of the truth is canceled out by our failure to live it in our own experience, our failure to show the love of Jesus Christ and the warmth and acceptance, then we are producing not life but death. It's going to be rejected. It's going to be spit out and, 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 and cast aside. It's useless. It's worthless. But when we truly bring the gospel to bear, what tremendous changes happen. Remember how Paul exemplified this when he went to the city of Corinth? People were, were building up their lives of immorality, shame, sordidness, pagan barrenness by, by arguments and reasonings. And Paul told them, when I came to you, I, I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is, I, hey, I didn't come to debate with you. I did not come with the wisdom of this world. I didn't come to cancel out your arguments with counter argument. I did not come to debate philosophy. I came to declare to you that in Jesus Christ, there is relief, there is release, and there is deliverance from the pride of the human heart. Pride is killed by the cross of Jesus. And when we accept what this cross means and what this Jesus who died for us has done, and we kneel at his feet, there is then released in our life a power that cancels our pride. We're brought low before him, and God begins to make us over again on a different scale. That's the power of the gospel. That is the power of the, of the believer. That's the message that will, that, that message alone will help society. 
I wish that Christians, I, I wish that we Christians could understand how great this program is that God has put in our hands. It's the only way out. There's not another. It's not merely one of certain alternatives by which the world can work out its problems. It's the only way. And when we begin to believe that, we find compassion awakening in our heart like it's never been there before. This passion for, for neighbors and friends and others who struggle with, with painful problems of life. We, we have the solution in our hands. It's the story of this one who can break the shackles, who can set people free. This one who came into human history, Jesus Christ. And who, when someone comes to him with all of our burdens and our problems and enslavement and says to him, Jesus, I'm here. I can't do anything by myself. No one else can help me, but, but here I am. Please set me free. He does it. And there's a great power that's released. How many of us here could testify to that? He set us free from ourselves, from our selfishness, and began the healing of our life. And this is what makes us get together Sunday after Sunday. That's really why we're here. We're, we're rejoicing together at what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. This place is, is no, there, there's no religious hocus pocus. There's nothing about this service that will do anything magical for you. If we expect it to perform some kind of religious magic in our life, then we're greatly mistaken. It is simply the expression of hearts that are filled with gratitude to the God of the universe who has loved us and who has set us free in Jesus Christ. We have experienced something of the healing of the world and of the power of God. And when we look at the world around and we long to impart this in some way to others to find ways behind the defenses of people so that we might tell them effectively what this gospel is all about, this good news of God's healing grace in Jesus as someone has put it very well, that is evangelism. And basically, what evangelism is, is one beggar telling another where he can find bread. Amen, and God bless.